You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Hello, Kate. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know we've chatted a lot in the past on the podcast about talking to financial advisors and maybe some of the questions you should ask, but I realized the other day we haven't ever had a financial advisor on the show to actually ask all the nitty-gritty details about what they do in a day, uh, how they can help people, when is the right time to see one, how much it costs. So I've got my friend Paul Benson, uh, who's also a fellow podcaster on the show, to answer all these questions um, that we've gotten from our community recently. So I'll just throw it over to you, Paul, to introduce yourself and maybe just talk a little about what you do sort of in a regular day as a financial advisor. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, so as you say, I'm a financial planner, and I've been doing that for about 20 years. Also host the Financial Autonomy podcast in terms of what I do in a regular day. So that's interesting. Okay, so a lot of, most of my work is looking after our existing customers. And as a minimum, once a year, we catch up for a formal review. So a lot of my day is spent either preparing for one of those meetings, either in one of those meetings, or then doing the work that flows off the back of those meetings. Now, of course, in between those annual reviews, we call them progress meetings, there's other bits and pieces that clients need done. But yeah, a lot of it is just is working with those clients and, and thought, we're going to get a little bit into you know what financial planning is all about. But the overarching thing is clients will have particular goals that they're trying to achieve. And so we're trying to make sure that we're making progress and moving forward in achieving those goals. So um, it's a lot of 
so you, you know you're dealing face to face with people these days often via Zoom. But I guess for say an hour in front of a client is probably four or five hours work, not in front of the client, but getting the stuff done or preparing and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it happens behind the scenes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, there's there's financial modelling or, or just research that needs to be done, that sort of stuff. And I know you use the term financial planner. Before we get into the questions, is there a difference between financial advisor and planner or is, no is that used interchangeably? Okay, great. Yep. And in fact, they're, they're actually words that are, I think it's gone through parliament now like they're actually proper legislated words and and you can only describe yourself as a financial planner or a financial advisor if you're actually registered with ASIC and you know have all the all the legal requirements to be able to call yourself that that sounds like a good thing yes very much in place awesome so I guess we'll start is what is financial advice in an Australian context and what does a good financial advisor do for clients Sure. So, so as I touched on, absolutely the main thing is a financial advisor is their role is to help you achieve your goals. So, whenever you sit down with an advisor, the, the starting point would typically always be, what are you trying to achieve here? You know, and that obviously vastly different for different people. Some it's to buy a house, some it's to retire, some it's to move to self-employment, whatever it is. So, it's about all right. These are the objectives, and then the financial planner would then find out. Okay, so tell me what you've got now, you know, what's the income coming in, what's your balance sheet like, debts, all those type of considerations and, you know, there's quite a few things to discuss and then it's about developing a plan to get you from where you are now to where you want to get to on in terms of those objectives. And as I say, typically it's an ongoing thing. It's In most cases the objectives, it's not going to be, all right, well, we do these three things and bang, your objective's achieved. It's typically something that's going to take place over time. I guess one way to, to think about it, an analogy that is not an original to me, but I quite like it. If you think of a, a soccer game, your financial planner is a combination of the coach on the sidelines and perhaps the goalie, right? The goalie's there to sort of stop the bad stuff happening, which could be, say, I don't know, share markets are a bit volatile and without a planner, some people go, oh, panic and switch everything to cash or you know, sell up. Whereas the, if you had a planner to perhaps talk to, they might have said, well, look, hang on a minute, we're doing this because we're trying to achieve this goal actually, does this short-term volatility really alter what we're trying to do? You know, sort of talk you off the ledge a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So the financial planner, as I say, if you think about a game of soccer, they're the coach and they're the goalie, and then your job is to do sort of all the rest, right? So you're in the centre, you're running the ball, you're kicking the goals, taking all the glory, and but the financial planner is just there to support you and help you succeed. And I know we've chatted a little bit in the past and about how financial advisors aren't just the people that say do X, Y, and Z with your money, but they're actually a coach and someone who can support you and educate you along the way. And I had never really thought about that before we spoke about it. So is that how much of your job do you think is more of the coaching side? Because I, I you can give someone a perfect plan, but if they don't follow it or they, they freak out at the wrong moment, so the plan's sort of pointless, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's which touches on a related point. A lot of actually the role of the financial planner is about giving people peace of mind. You know, a key thing when we catch up for those annual progress meetings that I wanted to deliver to the clients is everything's okay. You know, <laughs> I mean, look, sometimes you've got to say, hey, we're not on track to hit this target. You know, I need you to do this or, you know, or we need to, you're going to have to work an extra year because the way we're tracking, we're not going to achieve that goal, mm -hmm. right? So you can't always be, hey, everything's good. I mean, you've <laughs> got to be honest, right? But for the most part, and, and, and people are realistic generally, that's not a problem. Um, it's about giving people the confidence that I know that part of my life is okay because 
Paul or whoever is over it, you know, is, is on, you know, across it. So that's, yeah, so that's a really important element, giving them the confidence. So then back to your question around the education, yeah, so typically you mightn't necessarily get into a lot of that in the initial engagement because there can be a bit of overwhelm and then you, that can lead to paralysis. Mm. But it's typically something that would happen over time. Like most planners would communicate to their clients pretty regularly. So, you know, we have emails go out with various updates and other communications, as, as I mentioned, I mean, I've got a podcast as well. So there are typically gen- communication things that are happening between the advisor and their clients that's going to contribute to that education over time. And then certainly when you're catching up for the annual progress meeting and, and, and other discussions during the year, that is going to happen. Now, some people are more interested in learning about that stuff than others. For some people, they hire a planner because they just don't really want to think about that sort of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's outsourcing it. So it's a bit horses for courses. But generally, and I, and I have seen some stats around the fact that people with a financial planning relationship do feel that they've got a, a higher level of understanding about the financial world than those that don't. So what are some of the, the common reasons you see people coming to you to get financial advice? Are there any sort of particular life moments that uh, stand out, I guess, for people's reasons to getting financial advice? Yeah, there are. So, I mean, divorce is one that, that comes up a bit. Um, you know, people get a divorce settlement and, all right, we've got a lump of money and how are we going to rebuild our life? So that one comes up a bit. Inheritances come up too. Uh, I mean, the, the classic, of course, is, hey, I'm retiring at some point in the future, but, you know, at the point where I can start to see myself being retired and say, hey, I better start doing some planning about that. And I mean, it's tricky when they come in and say, hey, I'm retiring next month, but, you know, <laughs> hopefully yeah. you get a bit more lead time and therefore there's yeah. some actions that you can take. Another one that comes up a bit is where people have paid off their mortgage and they're sort of, all right, well, I'm used to putting X amount of dollars in the mortgage every month and I don't know, I've paid off the mortgage. What am I going to do with that cash flow now? Like That's a really good one. As a planner, that's a, a nice one to get because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. good, you know, we can really work on building something here. So, and, and I guess just more broadly, it can often be just people who are, look, I've got a bit going on. I've, I've got this income coming in, but I don't know, it just seems to come in and go back out again and I just I need a plan I, you know that that's for a lot of people often the spark is just the realization boy I'm just sort of spinning my wheels here and nothing's happening because I know a lot of people in our community kind of go well I think I need some help but I'm not really sure how much I need to have to make it worthwhile going to a financial planner given that the, the initial costs are quite high yes um and and sort of like when is the the right moment should you be a certain age or said have a certain net worth have a certain uh, job income. Yeah, and look, I think that is relevant and, it, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Actually, ASIC's doing some work at the moment around the affordability of advice. It is a challenge. The The way the legislation exists at the moment and it's evolved that way to provide consumer protection, but unfortunately it, it means that the provision of advice is really quite expensive. And so, I mean, just for instance, like our, our sort of licensee, there's three advisors that sit under that, I mean, just the basic cost before we see a single client, just to sort of pay the regulatory fees and insurance and that's about $70,000 a year. So that's no rent, that's no staff, that's nothing. That's just cost to be licensed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get a sense. So, so that's why financial planning is expensive. And as I say, the government's or the, you know, the regulators are aware of it and I don't quite know where that gets us to. So that being the case, and, and, and just to sort of clarify on that, I mean, generally, if you're going to get a a reasonably comprehensive financial plan done, it's likely to cost you between three and $5,000. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, our financial autonomy program is 4,400. So we're bang in the middle of that, right? Mm. You know, that's a significant investment. And so it's got to be a sense that the benefit you gain from obtaining that advice is going to outweigh the cost. Otherwise, it's not worth doing it. Now, it may not outweigh the cost in the first month or something. Maybe it pays itself off over a couple of years. But nevertheless, it doesn't work if it takes 10 years to pay it off either. So in terms of when to see an advisor, I guess it's at the point where there's enough opportunity that having obtained the advice, it's going to more than pay for itself. And so, you know, as much as it would be nice to be able to give advice to perhaps someone early in their career, and and in some cases, I mean, sometimes we do that, you know, children of, of clients and that sort of stuff, but it's probably going to be more once you've been in your career for a little while, you know, five years plus, and your income's, you know, maybe into the six-figure level or, or getting close at least. And so therefore, you know, you're starting to pay a bit of tax and maybe there's some debts and there's, and there's a bit going on and there's some complexity. That's where maybe, the, you know, that's when you start to get to the point where, all right, there's enough value that can be potentially delivered here to warrant the cost. And I'd probably think you'd also have to be in the state of mind where you're ready to actually take some action from the financial plan that's developed. If you don't think, if you just want the plan and don't actually plan on doing anything about it, it might not be the right time. Spot on. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I imagine the scope's quite large, but what are, you know, sort of a broad brush, what are the different things that a financial advisor could help you with? I I can imagine that it's very large and some people do specialise in different areas. Okay, so starting point, as I touched on, financial planning is about achieving objectives. So a good starting point is determining your goals. And uh, actually, a lot of the I don't know if you mentioned it, but anyway, there's a book and Kate, you were generous enough, a book of mine, you were generous enough to uh, to put an endorsement on it, which is awesome. And a lot of people have given me feedback, the section there around the objectives and particularly the prioritization of the objectives is the bit that they found the most useful. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly something that working with a planner can often help people with. An interesting element of that is particularly with couples, often people come in and they just, for whatever reason, haven't been able to have that discussion because, I don't know, it just feels awkward to them. But somehow, them both sitting in a room with me kind of breaks that down a little bit. And so sometimes, you know, we might come in, just thinking of one last week, and, you know, so, all right, well, how can we help? What's the objectives? And the husband reels off, right, oh, we want to do this and property this and blah, 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 and buy a warehouse and et cetera. And I'm like, okay, yeah, well, that, that all makes sense. And okay, all right, so we're trying to do that. And then we get, you know, half an hour into the meeting and then the wife says, well, actually, I don't want to do that. I want to buy shares. Oh, <laughs> the two of them had never discussed it, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes even there's couples have got different views on helping the kids, say, with a deposit for a home or, or these sort of things or, or how important it is to leave an inheritance, you know. So, yeah, discussion around goals, prioritising the goals, getting couples on the same page with their goals. That's certainly a really important element of financial planning and something we spend a lot of time with clients on because if you don't get that right, then all the strategies you develop are not going to work. They're not going to resonate because they're not aligned with what the clients are trying to achieve. So clarity on the goals, prioritization of the goals is really important. And then I guess you're looking at investment strategy. So you're thinking about how are we going to invest? Are we regular savings plans and and core satellite approaches and all sorts of things that I'm sure you guys have have talked about previously on the podcast. So it's about investment strategy. What are we going to use here? How are we going to achieve these goals? What are the opportunities? Thinking about tax, gearing and and, and all those sort of things, you know, cash flow, saving, how can we we optimise that? And sometimes too, insurance. So most financial planners 
there are some financial planners, all they do is insurance, but that's increasingly rare. Um, but most financial planners, if they're doing a plan and they identify, hey, you know, for instance, you really should have income protection because to make this whole thing work, we're relying on you continuing to earn your income and if that stops, then it all goes pear-shaped. So typically financial planners might cover insurance as well, just personal insurance, like they won't do mm-hmm. car or house or something like that, but personal stuff. And then there are other specialties. So a lot of planners might refer out certain specialist areas. So like in our case, we don't deal with aged care advice, right? That's quite a specialist area. And so we have someone that we know who's, that's all she does. And so whenever, typically it's, it's for clients, parents, they have an issue of a parent needs to go into aged care and, you know, sell the house and those type of considerations. And we'd refer that to a specialist. And there are other specialists like some who all they do is deal in self-managed super, for instance, um, we, we do that in-house, but some people would refer that out too. So there's a, some sort of specialist functions that I guess a bit like the medical field, you know, there's certain things that people do and then specialist areas they refer to others. And I've seen some like financial advising firms start popping up that specialise in a particular industry. So like people working in the medical industry or defence and they can they know the ins and outs of what's available down that particular path. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, you do see that. You're right. Yeah, medical's a common one teaching sometimes yeah so yeah that can be a good that's kind of a like a niche business decision isn't it you know it's it's quite nice because yeah you could be quite targeted and as you say really know the ins and outs of that industry but so just a a stock standard financial advisor would be able to provide you with a a broad overview of all the sort of the key topics like investing and insurance and everything like that if your situation is not too complicated yeah correct correct and probably just something that's worth flagging at this point what the financial planner isn't or, or, or doesn't possess is a crystal ball, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes people have the perception that I'm going to see a financial planner and they're going to put me into some stock that, you know, I'm going to buy for a dollar and it's going to be worth $100 in a year's time. That, that's not at all what financial planners do. So mm-hmm. as I say, our role, okay, what are your objectives? What are the strategies we can put in place to get you from where you are now to where your objectives are? And really you're trying to do it in the, the most sort of reliable outcome possible which means not it's not correct to say you're trying to do it in the lowest risk possible because low risk sometimes might mean you'll never achieve your goals but you're trying to do it in the most reliable way so it's not about taking a punt on some share or trying to pick this you know particular winner Um, it's all right if we have appropriate diversification all the rest what's the most reliable way that we can get you there this is like a left of field question but do you think a lot of financial advisors are tending towards exchange-traded funds and managed funds and more diversified portfolios? Or are there some out there that still help investors build individual share portfolios? I would say, yeah, historically managed funds were a pretty central element of a financial Mm. planner's toolkit, more so than individual stocks. Obviously, ETFs have come around in the last decade or so and and I think generally financial planners were probably the first to start using them because it was a pretty easy transition from managed funds to ETFs, you know, very comparable products mm. um, just with some often some key benefits. So, yeah, individual stocks, I think there are still some advisors that do that. I mean, we do that for certain clients that have a strong interest in that, but it's not typically necessary. Again, if you're thinking from the perspective of I'm trying to get you to a certain outcome, you're not really looking to sort of pick individual stocks that might shoot the lights out or might not. What you're looking at is what strategy can I put together here that's going to give me the best chance of success? Mm. And and so your funds, your ETFs, that sort of thing, because they're well diversified, are going to give you a more reliable outcome. You know, like if you you sort of 
it's hard in audio form, but if, if your listeners could could picture a sort of a, a diagram that had, you know, range of potential outcomes over, say, a 10-year period, right, and you might forecast out that, look, we'd expect to get 8% a year and therefore this investment strategy would be likely in 10 years' time to be worth whatever, $300,000, right? However, we know that, you know, investment returns are uncertain and they're variable year to year. So therefore the range of outcomes, if we go a really diversified portfolio, our expectation is it'll get to 300, but it could be anywhere between 200 and 400, right? I'm just totally making up the numbers, right? But but yeah. that gives us our range of potential outcomes. If you go individual stocks, the range of potential outcomes will be much wider. So whereas the expectation might be 300, but it could be 600 or it could be, you know, 50,000, right? Well, well, as a planner, that's not really what we want because I want to try and have the highest probability of hitting your goal. And so that's where typically you want to diversify and that's where ETFs and funds and that sort of thing are usually better. The individual stocks often, it's more about a bit of a personal interest, you know, a bit of a hobby. There's not actually, in a financial planning context, there's not really a need to go individual stocks, but often people just like it just because it's fun and interesting and they want to follow particular companies and that's cool you know that's fair enough if that's what people want to do we can help them for that for sure yeah i guess it's interesting to think about that from the forecasting perspective if you're trying to tell someone if they're going to be able to reach their goals in 20 years it is much easier to do something do that with managed funds and exchange traded funds that have sort of that track record and history over time yeah and just because they might have anywhere from a hundred to thousands of different shares then you know you're going to get the average return which is much more predictable yeah, absolutely. Mm. Now, if we look a little bit more about fi- actually finding a financial advisor, because we often uh, get questions like, how do, you, how do you actually find a financial advisor if you don't know one or you don't have anyone that can refer you to one? Mm. Where do you find the elusive financial advisor and how do you know if they're a good financial advisor? I, I mean, that's probably quite an arbitrary term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how do, what okay. sort of things should you look for? Sure. So, I guess yeah. Often you you know you might ask for some recommendations, or you might Google or whatever to I guess get some initial candidates. But a, a really important first step is ASIC has a register of licensed financial advisors in Australia. Before you know, if you, if you find them on the web or whatever, first thing is just check that register and check that they are actually licensed, right? Because unfortunately, and there's that odd situation of that. Lady up in New South Wales recently, you it's know, been a crazy foot or something. It's weird. <laughs> you know, the initial reports were she's a financial advisor, and then fortunately they corrected that because she wasn't. She wasn't licensed at all, but she presented to people that she was, and effectively she stole their money. Right. So you want to make sure they're licensed because if they're licensed, then they're getting annual audits. They've got professional indemnity insurance. They've got ongoing education requirements. They've got to pass an exam to have been licensed in the first place. Right. There's a whole lot of hurdles. So. Check that out, absolute number one, right? That's your consumer protection primary piece. Now, beyond that, as I say, typically with a financial planner, it's it's not likely going to be that you're going to do one interaction with them and then never see them again. Hopefully not. Most generally to achieve objective, it's going to take time. So therefore, you need to have someone that you feel you can have a, a working and, and an open relationship with, you know, someone who, and it's not that in the very first meeting you have to totally open up your soul, you know, but but you have to feel that over time I can build a relationship and I can feel confident talking to this person, talking about things that, you know, in our normal life, we don't talk to friends about, hey, this is how much mortgage is or, or you know, I'm stressing about this or, uh, geez, I've got 20 grand going on the credit card or whatever, right? I mean, 
so you've got to find someone who you can open up and have those sort of money discussions and feel comfortable having those money discussions, someone that you feel isn't going to judge, isn't going to lecture you, isn't going to make you feel small, but is going to listen and is going to help. So yeah, first and foremost, make sure they're licensed. And then it's really about how you feel that relationship's likely to go. Hmm. Is there any sites online where you can review financial advisors or look at look at their track um, record or anything like that? There's a website, Advisor Ratings. I haven't looked at it for years because they sort of, you know, you're only on there or you had to pay to be on there sort of thing. It was, um, uh, okay. So anyway, so, but, I, and I'm just, so I'm not sure where that's at at the minute. That's the only one I can think of. Maybe there's yeah. others, but yeah, I'm not aware. Yeah, I think I've, I've found the financial Planning Association. Oh, yeah, quite right. I should have thought of that. You're right. I don't Financial Planning Association is a good one. Though, but. No, maybe not. But at least it demonstrates an extra degree of professionalism, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. because the, the, the people that are on the Financial Planning Association, yes, I think, thank you, Kate. I should have thought of that. There's a, <laughs> there's a find your planner tool, find a planner tool. And um, yeah, I mean, as I say, you've got to do quite a bit just to be licensed but then you've got to do even more to become a certified financial planner. So someone who's done that shows a commitment to the profession, I suppose. And actually, you've prompted me now. Another one that you could look at too, there's the Ethical Advisor, uh, no, what's it called? Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, RIA, R-I-A-A. They've got to find a planner tool as well. And in fact, the Ethical Advisors Co-op might do too. Yeah, so there's a few industry associations like that. Yeah, that could be a way to go. Yeah, because I think it, Apart from sort of Google or using one of those websites where you might find someone and then ring up and book an initial conversation, it's it's hard to know if that finance is quite new to you, what questions you should even be thinking mm-hmm. about asking and how to even know if they're the right fit if you don't know what your goals are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think really you'd have to, you know, you go in, I mean, something sparked your reason to want to book an mm-hmm. appointment in the first place. So I guess you, you'd go in and the planner's normally going to ask, you know, what brings you in? How can I help, right? That's usually where things start. And so then you you need to, all right, well, I've come in because of this life circumstance or this is what's going on in my life. And then have a chat, spend an hour with them usually and, all right, get a feel for, yeah, I think this person's listening to me or no, I didn't I didn't like the vibe, you know. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of a large part of it. You've got to feel that you can build a relationship over time with someone and, and feel that you can trust them. Absolutely. Now, I know earlier in the episode, you mentioned that the cost is sort of around three to 5000 for that mm-hmm. initial statement of advice. What should people do if maybe that cost is out of reach and maybe they can't see a financial advisor for a couple of years? What would be the preparation steps maybe leading up to seeing a financial advisor that you've maybe recommended people take in the past? Yeah, look, it, it, as I say, it, it's it's a challenge and no one's really got a, a great answer for that in Australia at the moment. I mean, it probably really comes down to self-education. Yeah. So I know, um, you know, there's online courses. I know you guys have some online courses. We do too, books, um, podcasts. Um, it, it really is probably educating yourself, I would think. There are some online, they call it robo-advice sometimes, type players. Uh, Six Park is one that we've, we've had a little bit to do with, although you know, so I can't sort of recommend anyone, but but just throwing it out there, I'm sure there are others. So there are some services like that that are quite affordable and, and can help you in certain elements. The challenge with them though is, you know, there's not an ability to actually have a chat with a human and say, hey, here's my issues. You know, it mm-hmm. still requires you to have identified the issues in the first place. Yeah. So yeah, uh, the 
there's no perfect answer to that. And you know, as I say, there, there is a recognition that affordability of advice is a problem in Australia at the moment. Yeah, but that's the circumstances we're in. Because mm, a lot of time people have maybe just one question they want answered, but even yeah. sort of podcasts like us, we maybe that question delves into too many personal details and we can't address it. And even a, a just a financial advisor maybe on their blog can't address that kind of question. And so it, it's hard if you do have to pay the money to get the statement of advice before you can ask that question uh-huh. and get a proper answer, which I guess is leading people to posting things on Facebook groups and Reddit yeah. and TikTok and all sorts of other platforms, which has been sort of talked about a lot in the media recently to try and get an answer just to one question. The way the regulation's done, it's it's divided up into general advice and personal advice. So general advice is you can just talk generally about, hey, here's what an ETF is or something like that, the sort of stuff that, that you cover in the podcast. And that's fine. But as soon as you go into personal advice, which is anything that's sort of tailored to the individual, to the individual circumstances, then you need to be licensed and you need to issue a financial services guide and you need to document it in a statement of advice and you need to have researched all the alternatives and there's a, it's a whole, you know, mm. and that's the law. So <laughs> I haven't got a great answer. <laughs> it's as definitely I say, a it's, challenging it's, area it's just, at the moment. That's the way the Australian law is written and it was with good intention because it's trying to protect people and ensure that financial advice from licensed advisors is always can be relied upon and is, and is comprehensive and well-considered, but the challenge is to do that sort of comprehensive, well-considered advice. You can't just answer it in a five-minute chat, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I know there's been, like after the Royal Commission, there's been a lot of changes in the industry, and I was wondering maybe if you could just sort of explain like independent financial advice versus getting a financial advisor from a super fund or getting a from just like a boutique firm like yours. Like what is what's sort of the different like levels um, yeah. and maybe the what's the status at the moment on the commissions because that was part of the whole contention. Great. Okay, excellent question. So let, let's let's deal with the commissions first, right? Mm. So anything investment-related, including superannuation, in, in, uh, commissions have been banned for, I don't know, five years or more now, right? So there, there are no commissions in the Australian environment on anything to do with investment. Yeah. There are still commissions on insurances and there are some planners that, you know, just charge a fee to do insurance work, but most will charge, you know, will, will be paid via commission and so therefore the client, you know, doesn't have to pay a fee for that because they get paid via commission from the, the product issuer instead. So that's the only place where there are still commissions, right, on insurances. And it's probably just also worth mentioning, like in my case, you know, there's, I don't know, a dozen different insurers in Australia. Whether I recommend insurer A or insurer, or insurer B, the commission's almost always identical. So, so consumers shouldn't be concerned that I oh, was just recommending that one because they pay a higher commission. Actually, it's, it's, I mean, if they're different, they're like 0.01 different or something. Like they're essentially there's just an industry standard and they all pay the same. Okay. So that's on commissions, but that feeds nicely into independent because that does make a lot of sense, right? As a consumer, you go, yeah, independent advice. That's what I want. The word independent, interestingly, is actually defined in legislation. And so, as a financial advisor, financial planner, you can't use the word independent. If you take any form of commission, and that includes insurance commissions, and pretty much all advisors do, and unless there's the odd practice that just doesn't do insurance. So they might be able to call themselves independent, mm. but the vast majority won't. Really, what as the consumer you're after is sort of unbiased. I guess that's really what you're trying to, when you say independent, that's really what mm. you mean, isn't it? You know, that, hey, I don't want to go into an advisor with a 
a big bank or an institution or something, and then all they're going to tell me about is their particular products. Now, and that's a valid concern. And so when you're talking to somebody, they'll be licensed and you want to just have a bit of a look at, well, who's the license that they operate under? Mm. So, and just reflect on whether you're comfortable with that. Now, it's it's worth saying that financial advisors legally, they're, they're, um, they're sort of number one legal obligation is that they have to act in the best interest of the client, right? That's the that's the test. If as an advisor you ever find yourself in court, that, that's what you've got to satisfy. That's what you've got to prove, that I acted in the best interest of the client. So that being the case, it shouldn't really matter. Like even if you were a licensed advisor with, you know, AMP or somebody, you've got to act in the best interest of the client. And so if the AMP product isn't the best solution for the client, then your legal obligation is to recommend what is the best solution. So therefore, mm-hmm. from the consumer perspective, it, it shouldn't matter. It's it's still not perfect, right? Yeah. So I, I would suggest probably don't, if you try and hunt for financial planners that specifically use the word independent on their website, unless they're sort of doing it when they shouldn't, you're not going to find many because the, the way that the legislation has defined it is too, doesn't work, right? But so you need to dig a little bit deeper. So you'll get you'll find it on their website, but particularly if you look for their financial services guide, it's often um, abbreviated to FSG. Pretty much every financial planning website will have a link to their, their their financial services guide, and that will make it clear who the licensee is. And then you have a look at who the licensee is, and just check: well, does that seem like they're an unbiased sort of group, or is that licensee a product manufacturer? And therefore, mm. maybe I'm uncomfortable with that. Right? Yeah, it's. So that's kind of how I'd suggest you, you sort of approach that. Hmm. If you ask a financial advisor, like, do they have any relationships with particular fund managers or insurers or banks, do they have to provide that information? I would have thought so. It would be strange for them not to disclose that. Hmm. If you, you know, if you ask a direct question and they, then they can't <laughs> lie. So I would think they have to, yeah. So certainly, I mean, that's something that, that we go through, you know, in our case, hmm. we our license is owned by financial advisors. We don't have any relationships with any product manufacturers. You know, that's an important important thing for us as a business. And so obviously we're pretty keen to communicate that to clients because we think that's very relevant. Yeah, I, I remember that when I had a look the other year at the independent financial advisor, the the website, it was only about 30 of them under that in Australia. So yeah. most financial oh. advisors don't fall under that banner. Yeah, that's right. And for the reasons I've explained, it's just the you can't use that word like legally. Yeah. If you take any sort of commission and the way, you know, if you do anything with personal insurance, which most advisors will do, then they will get some commission from insurances. So therefore they can't call themselves independent. Yep. So the most important thing, who do they actually work for? Who are they licensed for? Are they representative of a particular firm that have their own funds and things like that. That's something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, yep, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I guess to to finish off this conversation, I wanted to ask you sort of what are the sort of important questions that if I was to start a new relationship with a financial advisor that I should ask to make sure they're the right fit, the right person to help me reach my financial goals? Sure. I guess the first thing is to feel comfortable asking the questions, mm. to not feel like if your sense is oh, I've asked that question, I'll, I'll feel dumb or something like that, then that's not a good sign for the relationship. So so first and foremost, feel comfortable asking your questions. And uh, it's likely that 
in working with a financial planner, your own financial education will improve over time. And so and that only happens through you asking questions and clarifying, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, you know, feel comfortable asking the questions, I suppose. A good question to ask would be, look, are my goals achievable? Because I mean, we're just doing some work on a, a job at the moment, presenting it next week, someone who wants to retire at 55 and, you know, a certain amount of income that they want, et cetera, et cetera. And we've crunched the numbers and we just can't see that, that that's going to work. They need to work longer. There's, you know, there's a few other levers we can pull, <laughs> but essentially the answer is no. So, again, the starting point with financial planning is, all right, what are your objectives? How are we going to get you there? So you want to ask the planner, you know, if you come in and sort of, look, this is what I'm thinking and I want to quit my job and work two days a week so that I can freelance, blah, 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 they might need to do some calculations. But a pretty good starting point is, look, is this realistic or am I totally dreaming here? <laughs> because that's pretty useful. Otherwise, you could waste years of time trying to pursue something that just won't work. Right? Um, and, of course, nine times out of ten, most, in my experience, most people are pretty realistic. It's yeah. usually totally doable. But you want to clarify that. Probably another a good question might be just whether they've helped anyone in a similar circumstance. So I don't know, if, you, like if you're recently divorced, right, well, have you helped other people that have gone through a divorce? And you know, I guess just to get a sense that the advisor has some relevant experience and track record that they've learned from and maybe seen through to the other side, like that would be valuable. Yeah, so that's probably a few things that pop to mind maybe. Yeah, I think that's a good starting point and making sure there's someone that's going to be able to be open and honest with you um, and tell you if your if your goal is just completely too far out of reach or whether it's uh, it's achievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, your financial advisor shouldn't be some sort of salesy Tom Cruisey type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, rah rah, jump up and down on the couch like that. That. I mean, sometimes you need a cheerleader, but it's not probably the most helpful. So. Um, mm. Yeah, they should be trying to help you succeed and part of that is having honest discussions. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul, and I hope this has really helped people that are thinking about talking to a financial advisor, consider maybe when's the right time and some of the questions to ask. And I always love um, sort of doing your own due diligence and diving in and working out if they're the right fit for you. So thank you so much again, Paul. And if people want to learn a bit more about you and your book and the podcast, where should they go? Yeah, thanks, Kate. Um, so the website, financialautonomy.com.au, podcast is by exactly the same name. The book is by the same name, you know, so <laughs> if you want to jump on Amazon or something like that, financial autonomy is what you're looking out for. And uh, the other thing that that I have a lot of fun with and, and people might enjoy, we do put out a, a weekly email called Gaining Choice. And uh, yeah, that's something that I, I put a bit of effort into. So if that's of any interest, it's financialautonomy.com.au slash gaining choice. It's free, of course, and you can unsubscribe, but check that one out because uh, yeah, we have a bit of fun with that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Thanks very much, Kate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just 
have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.